We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today. Mark chapter 6. We started there last week and we're going to carry on today. I know that for some of you, this will be a difficult weekend to uh, pay attention. If you're like me, you get easily distracted and you're going to be looking at the hawk and the woodpecker and, and whatever this is. So, uh, you know, go ahead and let your mind wander a little bit as you listen. It's okay. Because we're thinking about God's creation. You know, one of the things that's so powerful about the VBS here, the way that Pastor Glenn and the rest of the team put that together, it really is to help our kids know Christ and to make him known. And it's really focusing on God, his greatness, his power, his magnificence. And so, uh, as Pastor Tim said, and I'd like to reinforce that, if you're not going to be here, just be praying during that time for what happens in VBS. I don't know how many of you had an encounter with God in a VBS program, but I can think back over my life of all the many different people I had who gave up a week in the summer and, and invested in me and the, the memory verses I learned and the truths I learned. And so, yeah. So anyway, be thinking about VBS. We're going to step into uh, our lesson today, and the title of the message today is A Long Day of Learning. A long day of learning, and as we stop to think about that, we're, we're following Jesus as he comes, and Jesus, we, we understand and know that Mark is written, and, and it starts right out in the first, first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it's written by Isaiah the prophet. And so, Mark is writing his gospel to help be, make known the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so all through, as we've been going through each one of these, each one of these uh, messages and going through this gospel, learning the truth of who Jesus is as he reveals himself and understanding and knowing that we're stepping into a Jewish world, and, uh, and, and for us that can be hard because we read this through a Western mindset, and this is a book that, that has an Eastern uh, uh, origin to it, and so that's why we've been careful to help, help you understand along the way what some of the things are that maybe we didn't quite fully understand, and today there's going to be some of that that happens as well. But there's this long day of learning, and it immediately follows the disciples coming back and reporting to Jesus all that they had done. You'll remember last week we talked about how, how Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. And, uh, and, and they went out and, and he gave them the authority to, uh, to heal and to cast out demons. And, so, and then there was that interlude where, where Herod was struggling with, with his guilt and Herodias were struggling with their guilt over having put John the Baptist to death. And so then the disciples come back and they report to him, verse 30 says of chapter 6, they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And it's interesting. I don't know if any of you know anybody who's a lifelong learner. If you have someone in your life who's a lifelong learner, one for me is Pastor Howard Matson, who used to be the pastor here. And he is a lifelong learner. If you know him, he's always learning something. And if you talk to him, he's always asking you a question so that he can learn something. And I, I think that, that when you get around a person who's a lifelong learner, it encourages you to learn. Have you noticed that to be true in your life? 
And so, uh, you know, I long to be a person who's learning. And at its core, really, that's what disciple means. It means to follow and to learn. But beyond that, a disciple is the, it also means to obey. You know, one of the questions we can ask ourselves as disciples of, of Jesus Christ is how are we learning and then how are we obeying? So as the disciples come back, they, they gathered around Jesus and they reported all they'd done and taught. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but they didn't report anything they learned. Okay, he sent them out and, and they taught a bunch of things and they, they had done a bunch of things, but did they really learn from what they had experienced? And I think that can happen for us, right? We can get so busy doing the work of, of the Lord and teaching other people what, what the Lord says, but are we learning as we're doing that? And I think what we see here in the last half of chapter 6 as we look at these accounts that are recorded for us is we see that Jesus is going to say, it's great that you went out, but here's some things that you yet need to learn. We must learn the big idea for today. We must learn that Jesus is God incarnate. In this last half of chapter 6, I believe that Jesus is showing the disciples specifically through some of the things he does as he goes through this day, he's beginning to reveal to them that he is God incarnate. Now, understand that for a Jewish person, that is a really hard concept to grasp. Because the most important passage, the, the passage that carries the most weight for a Jewish person is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Okay? And so as a church, we come at this and we understand, or at least we, 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 we look at the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and as we look back over what we've been shown here, it's easier for us to grasp this, but for a Jewish person to believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man is really difficult, even today. It's one of, the, one of the main stumbling blocks for a Jewish person being able to come to know the Messiah, Jesus, as king. So as we look at this, I believe that what Jesus is doing is through what he does in these passages that we'll look at today, he's revealing to them that not only does he have the authority, but he has the very nature and character of God. And in so doing, they have an opportunity to learn this for themselves. And as we look at it together, we have a chance to ask ourselves do we truly and fully grasp what it means that Jesus is God incarnate? Last week we looked at, at Jesus going to Nazareth and, and we made the statement that it's hard to receive a familiar Jesus as king. And so I want us to ask ourselves, is Jesus too familiar to us? Because if Jesus is too familiar to us, then we don't understand and grasp the unbelievable transcendence or otherness of who he is, his, his divine nature. So let's unpack these passages and, and look at them together, shall we? Chapter 6 of Mark, verse 31. 
Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to rest, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns to get there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can buy themselves some food, or they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. They found out, and they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds, fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the bread. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken bread and fish, and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. So if you've been around church for a while, you've probably had somebody who's given you a message on this passage. There's all sorts of fascinating things within this account. But again, if we're looking at the fact that, that Jesus is taking this opportunity, and remember, we talked about how Jesus does everything in parables. Not only his teaching, but also his very actions. His very actions, the very things he does, and the very things he says have a parabolic nature. And what that means is that unless you have ears to hear, you're going to miss what he's trying to say. And that's why so many times some of the things he does and some of the things he says can be confusing to us. But as he does this, as he, as he steps in here, there are things that he does that as we look at him, we're going to see that he's actually revealing that he is God. Quiet place, solitary place, remote place. If you're following along in ESV, that word is translated desolate. The word is eremos, and it, it means a lonesome or, or a waste place. It's a wilderness. It's the same word that Mark uses to describe where John the Baptist came from. It's also the same word that he uses to describe where Jesus went after he was baptized, where he was tempted by, by Satan, was in the, the wilderness. It's this word, this, this desolate, isolated, lonely place. So Jesus, when the disciples came back, there were so many people coming around him. He said, let's get away to a quiet place and we'll get some rest. And it wasn't a quiet place. It was a deserted place, a desolate place, a wilderness place. And so they went away by themselves there, but everybody ran around and followed them. And so here we are, it's this, it's this situation where Jesus has been ministering and, and, and he's been, you know, doing all these things. His disciples are exhausted. They haven't had a chance to eat. And so they're like, okay, we're going to pull away from here. We're going to take a time out. We're going to take a break. And they pull away, and they hit the shore, and then all the people are there. 
All right, have you ever been like that in your life where, you know, you've gotten to a place where you've just said, all right, I just need to be alone. And and you you go to a place where you think you're going to be alone and then there's people there. And you're like, yay. You're like, shoot, stink. Jesus, Jesus shows us. He had compassion on them. From the very core of who he was, it's this, this word that, that talks about his very belly ached for them. Matthew gives us a glimpse into why. It says that when he saw the crowd, he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You see, this, this idea of, of the people being like sheep without a shepherd, for, for God, that's, that's something that's, that's, that's very hard for him. Ezekiel chapter 34, if you're following along in the quiet waters, you know we've been in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 34 talks about the Lord will be Israel's shepherd. In chapter 34, verse 12, he says, uh, verse 11, I myself will search for my sheep and will look after them as a a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them because my flock lacks a shepherd. God's heart is is that his people would be cared for, would be watched over, would be shepherded. That's his heart. And so as Jesus walks on earth with the, with the heart of God, since he is God, he sees people and he has compassion on them because they are not being cared for. They're not being shepherded. And without that shepherding, without that caring, without that pastoring, People get harassed, and they're helpless to do anything about it. As soon as he sees that, it tells us in, in, in our copy of God's Word, verse 34, that he began teaching them many things. In the, in the midst of that, what true shepherding is, it seems, is, is for us to be taught by God so that we have opportunity to learn. It got late in the day, and the disciples came and said, this place is desolate, and it's late, and I'm sure these people are hungry, and we're hungry, and we're tired, and we've got the perfect solution. Send them away. See, Jesus sees them and realizes they need to be cared for. The disciples see them and consider they need to care for themselves. Send them away so they can take care of themselves. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. I love that. Don't you wish you could travel with Jesus? I mean, in the flesh. If you've trusted Christ, you know you're traveling with Jesus, right? But, but could you imagine, you know, you're the disciples. It's, it's already been a long day. There's still a whole lot more to come. And and you've got the solution for Jesus, you know. We can take that break that you told us we should take. We'll just send these people away. He's like, why don't you feed them? Remember, they've just come back from being sent out by him. They've done miracles. They've touched people, Mike, and healed them. They've they've cast out demons. They've taught people about the Messiah coming. They've they've been with Jesus. And so Jesus is like, have you learned anything? Give them something to eat. 
And immediately they go to, that would take a lot of money, and we wouldn't want to spend our money on them, is what the text tells us. And Jesus says, wait a minute, check out what you have. Check out what God has already provided. Go see what you have. And so they go into the crowd, and, and in the whole crowd of 5,000 men, which probably means, and you'd know this, there's probably about 15,000, 20,000 total people there. They go into that crowd, and, and wouldn't you know that in that whole crowd, there's only one little boy, John tells us, who's brought five loaves and two fishes. Nobody else has brought any other food. Either that, or they all had Twix bars in their bags that they were holding for themselves, all right? They didn't believe that they should be sharing that. But this little boy, for some reason, thought, I've got five loaves and two fish. I think this could feed 5,000 people if I give it to Jesus. Makes you wonder, what are you doing with your five loaves and your two fish? You got your Twix bar stuck in your pocket for yourself for later, or are you bringing it out, giving it to the Lord, and seeing what he can do with it? Because that little boy brought his five loaves, his two fish, and Jesus took it. And he thanked God for it. Common Jewish blessing. Maybe. Baruchatah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, hamotzeleha min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. See, the Jewish people understand and know what it means to have bread come miraculously from God. We do too. For 40 years they were fed by God. They understand and know that it's God who brings forth bread. When, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. Listen, you think you're producing your bread for you. No, 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 no. Your bread comes from God. Everything you have comes from God. You may think my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth from you, but don't forget the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so Jesus takes this and he thanks God for it. Thank you that you have brought bread from the earth and all of a sudden the bread is enough to feed 5,000 men, as many as 12,000 people. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And once again, Jesus is showing that he is God over creation. He has authority over creation. And everyone ate and was satisfied, and there were 12 baskets left over. In this, I believe that, that Jesus was showing the, the disciples that he was the promised shepherd that was spoken of in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. My servant David. And you know from the genealogies that Jesus came from David. And so he's the son of David. He will be on the throne of David. Jesus is the king for all times. He's that promised king. He's the Messiah. That's what that means. He's the priest. He's the prophet. He's the king all put together into one. And he is the shepherd. As a matter of fact, he will later say, I am the good shepherd. And he will make that clear. 
But I want us to see, and, and I owe a friend of mine, Justin Crone, who, who brought this to me first, that I want you to see the similarities between Psalm 23 and this feeding of the 5,000. So let's take a look at Psalm 23. You, you know this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in need. I will lack nothing. So here it is. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He comes to this congregation of people, 15, 20,000, and begins to shepherd them. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Remember, where did this crowd go? Yeah, but where were they? In the wilderness, a desolate place. But Jesus says to him, right, Mike, have him sit down in the green grass. That's a surprise, isn't it? I don't know. I, I've been trying to figure that out. How did that happen, that all of a sudden there's green grass in this desolate place? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Come with me, he said, to a, a quiet place. He restores my soul. Come and get some rest. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He began to teach them. He prepares a table before me. He has the disciples hand the food out. Cup overflows. There's extras left. So as we look, we see that, that Jesus is in this 5,000 in so many ways fulfilling that, that amazing psalm that David wrote. In what ways has Jesus revealed himself as the true shepherd in your life? As he begins to show the disciples in this day, this long day of learning, that he is the shepherd that has been promised. The second thing we see here is that Jesus reveals the glory of God. Jesus reveals the glory of God. John will talk about this in, in, his, uh, in his gospel when he says, we beheld, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. We've seen the glory of God. And that's in the next account, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd after hearing him after leaving them, I'm sorry, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, he thought he was a ghost. He cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's high. Don't be afraid. Oh, of course. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Okay. So again, it's a long day of learning. John gives us a little glimpse into this. In John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Mark tells us that immediately 
after he fed and they picked up the, the leftovers, that immediately he sent his disciples off on the boat and he went to a solitary place to, to pray. And again, Mark, we know he's, he's this immediate thing and we've looked at that. But the reason is because it seemed that the crowd was going to come and, and make Jesus be the king. And remember, we've talked about in all through Mark, there's this messianic secret. There's this secret that, that seems to be running through where Jesus is not revealing himself as king yet because he's come first as savior. See, our, our, our title of our whole series as we look at the gospel of Mark is the son of man focused on his mission. And his mission is to come and be the savior of the world. His mission is to go to the cross and eventually to rise from the dead. But his mission is the cross, and he's focused on his mission. And at this point in time, there's a group of people who are going to come and try and take him away from his mission. They're going to try and make him take that role of king, that he, he is king, and he will come back as king, and he will come back and reign in the millennium, amen? And he will be sovereign over everything, king on earth. But that wasn't the first advent, the first appearing of Christ. That comes at the second appearing of Christ. And so he sees that this is possibly going to happen. He sends the disciples away, and he goes away to pray. Jesus, fully God, fully man. I don't know what he prayed about. It doesn't tell us. We can speculate. I'm not sure it does us a lot of good. All we know is that in the midst of everything that was happening, he knew he needed time alone with God, the Father. And so he went to the Father and he began to pray. As he was praying, later that night it says, he, he looked out and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Right now, you know, he was up on a mountainside and he looked out over the Sea of Galilee and he sees the disciples straining. It's in the middle of the night, full moon. I don't know, how did he see? I don't know, maybe he just saw because he's God. But he sees them and they're straining against the oars. Now, this is different than the storm in chapter 4. You remember the storm in chapter 4 was a storm that came against the boat and, and, and it wasn't a storm against them. It was a storm against the kingdom. It was a storm that was trying to block the kingdom of God from moving forward in the way that God had designed. And so at that point, Jesus came and calmed those waves. That was a storm. This is different. This is a wind that came against them. And this wind came against them, and they were just straining at these oars, trying to move across the boat. You can remember, or you can consider, I'm sorry, that here's these disciples... They come back from being out going two by two, and, and they come back, they give a report, and they're all happy about everything that's happened. The next thing you know, they're, they're feeding 5,000 men, 12,000, 15,000 people, and 12 people, you know? I mean, this is a long day. Think, think of being one of 12 people feeding 20,000 people. You think you'd be tired? And, and now you get out in the boat. Jesus told us, go out in the boat. Now this big wind comes up, and you know? Anybody ever grumble because you're doing something that Jesus told you to do? Anybody? Liars. Okay. <laughs> and they're straining against the oars. It's like, oh, man. What is it? When are we going to be done learning? <laughs> right? And Jesus sees it. And he comes out to him. He walks out to him. 
right on the water. He walks out. You remember during the storm in chapter 4, they woke him up and said, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? Here, Jesus shows that he cares. See, Jesus cares about the wind that's blowing against you. He cares about that. And he came out onto the lake because he saw that they were straining against the wind that was against them. And it tells us in our text that he was about to pass by. Now, the, the literal meaning of that is that he meant to pass by them. <laughs> Jesus shows that he cares by coming out walking on the water, and he means to pass by them. Now, I've been thinking about that. It's kind of like, you know, Jesus comes out on the water. He sees that they're straining on the oars. He's going to show them that he cares, so he's going to come and go, hey, guys, yeah, boy, stinks to be you. You know, and he just heads out, right? That's how we read that. That's how we read that. But I wonder if we really consider what the Hebrew Scriptures are, and we consider that Jesus has come to make God known. Jesus has come to be the visible expression of the thoughts of God. He has come to reveal who God is. And he's doing that, and he's unfolding it in redemptive history for us. And so as he comes, he means to pass by them. Could I suggest to you that that phrase has significant meaning? There are two other times in Scripture where we read about God passing by. You know when those are? Remember when Moses... Moses was with God. Moses talked face to face with God. Like one man talks to another. And he said, I want to see your glory. And God said, I, I'm going to tuck you in the cleft and my glory's going to pass by you. And so this, this amazing glory of God passed by in front of Moses. The second time we see it is in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's this passage where Elijah has just finished defeating the, the prophets of Baal, and, and he's overwhelmed, and, he's, and he, he's just, you know, he's at a point where he's, he's feeling defeated, even though he's experienced this incredible victory. And, and in chapter 19, verse, verse 9, it says, I'm in 1 Kings, chapter 19, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I'm straining at the oars. I'm straining at the oars. I'm working so hard for you, God, but the wind seems to be against me. I've done all these things. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to be. Lord God said, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. I love that. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
Stop and consider. You're straining against the oars. You're working hard. You're straining against the oars. The, the wind is against you, but I am here. I am here. Jesus, as he came, this is an epiphany. It's an unusually, unusually sudden manifestation, this epiphany that we see in the Old Testament so many times, and now here we see that Jesus appears on the water, walking, ready to walk by in the midst as they are straining to show them the glory of God. And it scares them. It scares them. They're terrified. And he says, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. The literal translation of that is I am. Take courage, I am. Remember when Moses said to God, who should I say is sending me? He said, tell him I am is sending you. Jesus is helping them in this long day of learning and everything they're experiencing and their exhaustion and their weariness and the way that they're rowing and everything that's happening. He's trying to reveal to them, listen, it's okay. God is aware and God is here with you. And he climbed in the boat with them. And the wind calmed down. They didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the miracle of the feeding of the, of the 5,000. They didn't understand that God was there in the person of Jesus with them. God is fully God, Jesus, fully God, fully man. We meet God in Jesus Christ, and we learn about ourselves through him. We meet God in Jesus Christ and we learn about ourselves through him as he walked as a perfect man, fully God. We started this chapter 6 last week with Jesus being in Nazareth. And he was so familiar to them in Nazareth that he wasn't able to do miracles. Not because he didn't have the power to do miracles, but because they didn't come to him to have the miracles done. Because he was so familiar to them that they didn't take advantage of the fact that he was God, is God, and could step in the middle of whatever situation they were experiencing and would. A familiar Jesus is hard to receive as king. He's even harder to receive as God. See, because... For the disciples, Jesus has come to a place where he's gotten familiar. And we can't be too hard on him because the concept that Messiah would be God is something that's really foreign to their mind. But also, he looks just like them. He, he looks just like them. He's taken on the appearance of a man. And if God took on flesh, don't you think he'd be in a big fancy house? but he doesn't own anything, and yet everything is his. And so, Jesus, I believe, is showing them, don't think that I'm familiar. I am God. This stuff should amaze us. This stuff should amaze us.
if Jesus isn't too familiar to us. See, because I believe that Jesus has become too familiar to the church. I believe that we don't expect that Jesus will do miraculous things today. I don't believe that that we fully understand what it means that if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God lives in you. Can I get a witness? You see, in the disciples, Jesus had become too familiar, and he's too familiar to us. And a familiar Jesus, we, we, we like to have a familiar Jesus because a familiar Jesus is comfortable with our sin. A familiar Jesus is comfortable with our sin. A familiar Jesus will go along with us into the movie that we shouldn't see. A familiar Jesus will go with us as we look at the computer screen, at the things we shouldn't be looking at. Uh, a familiar Jesus will allow me to be in, in a difficult relationship with someone and not, not pursue reconciliation. A familiar Jesus will allow me to stay the center of the universe and still be there for what I need him to do. See, a familiar Jesus isn't God. A familiar Jesus is a Band-Aid. A familiar Jesus is there for me. And a familiar Jesus does not make me realize that I'm here for him. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but he's not like me. I'm like him. And that's a huge difference. And to fall anywhere else misses the power that he wants to bring into your life. He means to pass by you. He means for you to see his glory. He means for you to see his power. He means for you to follow him. He means for you to learn from him. He means for you to obey him. He means for you to find the life that he is empowering you to have. One more point. Jesus can be touched by the sick. It ends up, after he crossed over, they land again, they anchor there. As soon as they get out of the boat, people recognize Jesus. They run throughout the whole region, carry the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the hem edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This last section of this long day, he teaches them that he is able to be touched by the sick. Again, we don't understand that. The rabbis of that day, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, they would avoid crowds. Because if you went into a crowd, it's just possible that someone who was unclean would touch you and then you would be unclean. So they avoided being with the crowds. One of the things we miss as we look at Jesus being with the crowds all the time is that that wasn't normal. And he walked among the crowds and he let all the unclean people touch him. But he was not made unclean by those who touched him. Rather, each one of them were made clean because they had touched God. That's a really brief teaching on that section. But listen, Gabe and the team is coming up. I want to ask you, 
And maybe, maybe this has caused you to think a little differently about, is Jesus too familiar to you? Because he has not, Jesus has not come to be your Savior to save you from sin so you can sin. Jesus has come to save you from sin so that he can indwell you and give you the power to resist that. He, he has come to reveal his glory. Are you amazed by the glory of God? Are, are, you, are you overwhelmed by that? Does it sweep you away as you stop and consider what it means for your life and for your person? We're going to close with a, a song that we've come to know. Gabe brought it to us when he first came. A powerful song. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask that if you're amazed by God, whether you sing well or you sing poorly, maybe you have never sung out loud in church before. If that's you, let's sing this song as though we are truly amazed by the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. Amen.